0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not.
1: I'm Trevor Clifford. I'm here with Mark Gagné. How are you feeling, Mark? I feel all right. I feel like uh, well, I feel kind of like a CD player before they invented skip protection, like trying to listen to it. Like, uh, does this bring those, back any does this yes, bring back those, memories there?
0: Those were the days. This is bringing me back to gym class in Tolland High School, in the original Talland High, before they moved the buildings. You remember that?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's like this. I, yeah, I was breaking.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly like that. How are you, dude? Feeling? You just brought me a hundred percent back in time. Uh, I feel pretty. I feel good. This is not a negative, but I feel like a victim of Pompeii, frozen in time. That's how I feel, frozen in time. Okay. But not that I was covered with liquid hot magma and killed. Just that I'm frozen in time. But it makes me think of a of a victim of Pompeii. Uh, today is episode 44. And it is, I believe, this is the second episode of 2020, right? We already did one, yeah. at least one. So uh, in typical fashion, we're a little bit behind the ball. But I contacted Mark this week and I said we should do sort of like what everyone else is doing on podcasts and in shopping malls and everything else, which is basically looking back at the last year. Some people are looking back at the decade. Um, What's your opinion about looking back on the decade? Because you know, technically this is the last year of the decade. How do you feel about that? Do you think people are jumping the
1: gun? Uh, I I don't know. People want to say that this is the start of the decade. Uh, I don't really care either way. <laughs> I think time-wise,
0: this is, you know, but I mean, obviously it's logical to look back at the decade, but we're going to look back at 2019, which was the first year of our podcast. Um, and I guess since this is episode two of 2020, that we did 42 episodes in the first year, which is a pretty good ratio. We didn't miss too many weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so hopefully people weren't missing us too bad. But this is the year in review. So, so far on the podcast, I said to Mark, pick your top five. Uh, Are you a fan of the, what's that uh, movie with John Cusack about picking top five? What's that movie?
1: Um, Wait, top five. What I'm not sure. About he this wants one.
0: to in the movie. He like he's it's John Cusack and he's like in love with a girl and he runs like a like a like a record store. Oh, high fidelity. High fidelity. Yeah. Gotcha. So in that, he's always picking his top five things. Top five. Okay. And then him and Jack Black start a record company called Top Five Records.
1: <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, what's your, what's number five?
0: Number f- oh number five. I don't know if I put these in a specific. Um,
1: Pecky or your number 1 or your number 3.
0: Yeah. Okay, so my first one, I went with just the launch of the podcast. Episode 1 was Confessions of a Mask, one of my favorite novels of all time. And that's just, you know, I think that that book comes up like throughout a lot of the rest of the podcast episodes, you know, themes of alienation from the self. It's also Mishima. I love Japanese novels, so Confessions of a Mask was my my first pick of 2019 that I was like, "Damn, that book is awesome." Is like
1: one of your gateway kind of Japanese yeah, novels? Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely a gateway Japanese novel. It was introduced to me through a class in college. And then from there it was like, okay, who else is around this time period? So that brought me from Mishima to um, Osamu Desai with No Longer Human, um, Woman in the Dunes, all, all stuff like that. So yeah, definitely a gateway drug. What's your number one or your first thing that you want to
1: reveal? <laughs> I'm going. I'm. I'm. I think I may have interpreted this one a little bit differently when you uh, asked me to prepare for this, but I think hey, it'll work fine. out either way. I do have a, a five, four, three, two, one list, oh, okay. and Good. I kind of did more of uh, the year. My favorite parts of this year of podcasting not just the books. So, all right, number 5. No,
0: is... I think that I thought def- I chose ones that are based on that too. Like wow, okay, that was a good awesome. episode. Yeah, nice.
1: So, number 5 is when we, we brought our the game that we came up with first in, last out to Twitter
0: mm-hmm. and we
1: made yeah. some of the uh, writing community people discover that it, you know, applied to their work or that it didn't, you know. That would that was right. a cool moment. We had some yeah. people saying like Whoa! This you know fit together perfectly. I wasn't even going for that, mm-hmm. and so, so uh, describe what
0: first and last out is.
1: Yeah, that was the game I came up with where I uh, grabbed some random books from my uh, shelf and I read the first sentence of the first page and the last mm-hmm. sentence of the last page, and we tried to see if it made any sense, you know, mm-hmm. if it was uh, gonna work. So we. I honestly that. think
0: that I honestly think that that game could like shame a lot of authors who who think themselves as like succinct and like you know amazing like it's not something easy to think of but then if you did that in front of you know like hemingway or something he would probably be like
1: damn <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah and then uh so after we made that game i kind of took to twitter and we had one one night where we were just grabbing every book that we had <laughs> and, <laughs> and and writing everything down I'm like i got one here First sentence: The primroses were over. Last sentence: Hazel followed, and together they slipped away, running easily down through the wood where the first primroses were beginning to bloom. And that was like, you know, a perfect example of it with Watership Down, where Richard Adams had maybe almost planned it that way. So mm-hmm. it was it was cool to uh, to do that and to see which ones worked, which ones didn't, and definitely, yeah, we had some people questioning their if works they in should, progress. Uh, pay attention to it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So
0: that's nice. my number five. All right, my next one is uh, from I went episode one, Confessions of a Mask, and then episode two. I guess these are just episodes that kind of are special to me in nostalgia because it's like, oh, that's like when we were starting out. But also the the book is a factor too of just uh, the sellout by Beatty. Um, I just can't reckon I can't recommend Paul Beatty enough. I think that he is like. In terms of novelists alive right now, he's just in a different class. And it's I think it's hard to get that across, but it's just like people just like read the sellout. Like it's it's beyond <laughs> your like imagination. And also just, you know, again, it's a it's attached again to, you know, starting out the podcast. And actually, when me and Mark were starting the podcast, we recorded a bunch of episodes basically just thinking like we don't even know if we're going to put these ones out or if we're going to redo them. Cause it wasn't fully formed yet. I don't think we fully formed out like the games and intros and just like the whole checklist of things that we prepare. We now normally prepare for the podcast. So it's also a little bit of like, those were the infancy days, but we did decide to like put all those episodes out and it's, it's nice. So yeah, I'm remembering back at the beginning of the year and, uh, and also highly recommending to anyone who hasn't read Beatty yet to check out him and the sellout uh, such a good book. <laughs> we were so naive so naive so young
1: <laughs> that's a good one. Um, all right, my number four is yeah. when I got to make my stupid soundboard and you know use it way too much. <laughs> so, you know <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's my favorite. Wait, this one? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good when it ends with a gun. <laughs> <Miles from nowhere.
1: laughs> wait, wait, Whoa. wait. You got one more. One more here. Ooh, what does this I do? <laughs>
0: feel like I'm listening to an
1: MF Doom record. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Who could forget? Uh, yeah, more to come with that. It's dumb. I love it.
0: And what What do you even remember which episode you, like, introduced that uh, on? I
1: don't know. It's pretty early on. I just record stuff. On. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people will have an actual soundboard. I just record stuff off of YouTube and play it through <laughs> the speaker. DIY. So it sounds bad. The yeah. only way. The only way is DIY. That's how I do all of
0: our all of my pull quotes from TV shows and stuff like that are, are from it works. Yeah. Um, okay. My number three is I chose this one, not for specifically the book itself, but also for the episode. But I feel like it was like a breakout episode, but also something I got like really passionate about when I did the, um, the pension short story, the secret integration. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was, like, one of the first times on the podcast where I was, like, explained... I was, like, really into explaining the story itself. And Pynchon had given, like, enough material to make a whole episode out of a short story. So that was also eye-opening of, you know, to talk about a short story for 20 minutes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just the secret. And I think also... There's almost like an act of discovery that can happen. I don't know if you've come across this, but like I've done I've had realizations about the material like while doing the podcast, like while I was like talking about the secret integration, I was like, oh, wait, and this and this and this. And it was like building on itself. I felt uh, almost the same way when I was talking about um, Northanger Abbey. You know, like at first I started the episode being like, I don't know, this book is kind of vapid. And then I was like, no, wait, it's a comedy. <laughs> <You're> I <like, laughs> realized in the middle of the episode. So the secret integration episode five was, was a, I, I felt I was like, okay, now I like know how to do this podcast. Nice,
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that comes to me more in like parallels to other things, uh, parallels to other works and you know, whatever medium it might be. I'm like, oh mm-hmm. yeah, that's what reminded me of this actually. Yeah. I like that. All right. My number three, this one's really, this one's awesome. Uh, it was finding every tweet from the last 10 years that talks about book reports or specifically ones that mention a quote, shitty book report. Yes. yeah, We've <laughs>
0: retweeted a few shitty book report tweets and it's always really fun yeah. to find those people.
1: Yeah, there's, so I got a top three of those. Um, uh, first one is, okay, Bye for real, I'm gonna finish this shitty book report. <laughs> Definitely use that one. And then there's the very philosophical one. Um All of our memories are just one long, shitty book report written by younger, dumber versions of ourselves. Nice. And I think my favorite is the very straightforward gonna shower and do a shitty book report. Yes. Very good. I think about I think about that one every time I start like <laughs> preparing to record. <laughs>
0: yeah so (laughs) anybody out there who knows any other tweets that specifically reference shitty book reports um, you know add us (laughs) yes Um, yeah my next one is again uh, in episode 12 this was another one where I just like the passion like ran away with me not only during the reporting but I think that Doing the podcast has put like another would you say in in some ways negative, it's put a negative spin on reading, because it's like, oh, I have to like get this done for a certain purpose. But at the same time, it's also put a positive spin. Like when I was reading Master and Margarita for episode twelve, I was just like super psyched to to really tear it down and do I think that was one of the ones, too, where I was like, I have to do this book a service. Even though this is a shitty book report, it's going to be a not-so-shitty book report where I was trying to find out, like, lots of stuff about it. And, and I just kind of, like, got a little bit obsessed. Yeah. And, um. yeah, I think overall that episode is cool, but also Master and Margarita. That book is really weird. I mean, it's just basically, I think, like, looking back on it, you kind of think, like, I don't know like how unique is it really but then there's just like this sort of power that it holds over you of like it is super unique and a lot of people you know a lot of people out there it's their favorite book and even to this day when there's all of the when we have so much different like interpretations of magical realism or like harry potter style like kind of I don't know. There's something about Master Margarita that's really unique and it kind of just grabs hold of you and it did for the episode as well. So that yeah. was one of the, my favorite ones. Daniel Radcliffe's favorite book. Yeah. Harry Potter reads yeah. Bulgakov. I think that's the name <laughs> of the episode. So Yeah.
1: Yeah, I know that's cool. And like with the amount that we're reading with this podcast, we're, you know, not everything is going to be... <clears throat> A certain style you know we're jumping around a lot and then we're going to cover a lot of ground in that way so yeah it is cool though we do get to kind of see the differences between a, a lot of things that are considered great you know
0: yeah and it's really i think it's been the range. really fun to kind of discover things if they are great or not
1: you, know, yeah. you can make like a pretty quick judgment like no <laughs> <laughs> yes that that leads nicely <laughs> into my next one which is um I think finally reading some Virginia Woolf um, mm-hmm. that episode where I covered to the lighthouse uh, that I'd say that was probably my favorite book that I read last year. That wasn't something I reread or something from the archive, you know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it definitely I'd say open my eyes to a much broader range of what I'd call just technical writing. You know, the way, the way we, the way we view people like Pinchin like, there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff out there and it's important to not get caught too caught up in like the the uh modern western canon or whatever like whatever mm-hmm. uh, narrow view or right you know, i mean select, i think select few authors that you think are only the type of people uh, the only the only ones who do that sort of style or
0: right or like basically finding finding beauty because like that the introduction to quote-unquote serious reading i think happened to us in you know it's it's not super unique to be like this thousand page book is supposed to be written by this genius so like you get into that groove and then there's something else to be discovered like you said about like to the lighthouse then you start reading and you're like whoa that's really good because it's so simplified you know there's there's like beauty in that too
1: yeah oh, well to the lighthouse is not simplified though <laughs> that example <laughs> specifically that is a hard book to read oh, okay um, but well, yeah definitely looking forward to more growth in that respect in 2020 mm-hmm. so cool branching out and then yeah my I think the steepest
0: my next example is probably like the steepest It goes along with that theme of kind of going down the rabbit hole of not only podcasting, but just a great memory from this year of when I picked up, uh, you know, the supposedly amazing Madame Bovary. And that was, I think, kind of peak for me in terms of like passion for wanting to podcast it well, because It was just one of those things, like, why is Madame Bovary supposedly so good? And then it was super good. And also, I mean, it was like a circumstance of events, too, where I actually read, I think, a little bit less than half of that book for the podcast, like, to finish that day. So I was, like, in Madame Bovary mode. Oh. (laughs) You know, where, like, basically, in in, like, a true, like, way of finishing a shitty book report for school or something like that. I was like, I'm finishing the instead of saving it for another week. I basically Crushed had rhyme, like Yeah, yeah I, I basically had half the book left and I was like, it's go time. And I just like <laughs> woke up at 7 a.m. and like read straight through until like, you know, noon or 1 p.m. Yeah. or something. And I was like, whoa, like I'm obsessed with this book. Now I'm ready to do the podcast. Just like kinda of get rid of all of it and and not only that, but it kinda of delivered as soon as I got into that rhythm, I wasn't trying to put it down. I was like, this is this book is like peak achievement. Yeah. So yeah, Madame Bovary. Extremely good. Nice.
1: Thanks, Fraser. <laughs> and Niles. And Niles. Um, <laughs> so I think my number one probably was something that you've kind of touched on with a few of yours, which is just getting to talk about some of my favorite stuff or like reveal my secret fandom for a few books that I mm-hmm. really, really like. And those three for me were The Third Policeman by Flan O'Brien, mm-hmm. uh, Mervyn Peake's Gorman Gas Trilogy, and Ambrose Bierce's, uh Fables. Mm-hmm. Those were things that were like my private obsessions. And I think it kind of came through in the episodes. It's hard to tell if, because those were sort of early on. I think Gorman gas came like around the twenties or thirties, but the other two were were very early on where I was like nervous to do it. Cause like you said, you're it's a shitty book report. It's not like a high pressure thing, but you're like, I got to do justice to these.
0: Right? No. Yeah. I think that, I think even though you did it really early on third policeman, it came through of like something that, you know like you know uh my now wife daria is like one of our biggest fans and she constantly is like even though we've done however many this is episode 44 we we talk about the third policeman even though neither of us have read it yet we'll like see plays or movies or something and we'll be like it's like the third policeman like it's crazy (laughs) (laughs) so it definitely like came through and uh yeah, I mean, that that has also been, like, a very revealing thing about this podcast, because I think I went into the podcast thinking me and Mark, like, read the same books all the time. Like, you know, I thought that our, like, scope of reading was much narrower, and it was going to be about, like, the books that we've both read and, like, whatever, blah, blah. And then I learned, you know, that we're actually, like, super different readers, like, very similar, I think, in the way we tackle things, but also it was just, like there was a lot of new material coming at me where I was like, I didn't know you read that. I didn't know you read that. And it's been, it's been really good. Yeah. It's a Venn diagram of the yeah.
1: the ones we've had. Yeah.
0: And the stuff like, like you said, the, the stuff that's coming out, this is like a weekly conversation that you can't just, you just can't have with anyone else because I find that that's something like a little bit frustrating about the literary world as well is that you're, you have to find like your reading friends almost like, you know it's very hard to have a literary conversation with a
1: stranger yeah you like, have to you have to see someone reading a book you know <laughs> yeah wild, that's that very
0: you, specific to you you, know? you know like usually yeah. even if people are even if you meet Something someone like who's that. like a big reader it's like oh yeah i like murakami okay see you later
1: so you <laughs> there's no really... other clues you yeah. know you're not like they don't have like well they i guess they do for like you know, catcher in the rye and stuff, but they don't have like shirts, like t-shirts. like Yeah. There's a, no like third shirt or something. Shirts, yeah. <laughs> which is maybe something. I guess, that ta- ta- I guess about. tattoos kind of, there's probably mm-hmm. a lot of like muted horn.
0: Yeah. Crying yeah. a lot. <laughs> 49. Tattoos, oh, definitely. Like, yeah. You see like that, that everywhere. But I don't know. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that was our top five in review of the podcast. Hopefully another successful year this year. And, uh, you know, onward and upward. Um, I'm waiting till, till we get a true year, episode 52. That'll be another good celebration. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is episode 44, so that means I'm going first, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, my book this week, um, I think I alluded last week to the fact that I had been reading, um, a page turner. Yes, And page-turner. Yeah, that is definitely true, um. And it's a page turner in the sense of, like, I didn't really know that this was going to come forward as a page turner, but I'm going to be playing a clip from uh, none other than who, like, you know, what show delivers us so much literature and so many funny jokes that you just have to ask for more. Here's a clip from Fraser, season 10, episode two, called Star Mitzvah. Hi, Dr. Crane. Hello.
1: Ready for Yeshiva tomorrow? That means school. Yes, indeed I am. I'm looking forward to it. Ah, uh, listen all. I'm afraid I have some uh, very bad news about the science fiction convention. Uh-oh. Long story short, you see, I attended an art opening and a luncheon on Saturday. And even though I left the luncheon early, the traffic on the way to the convention was just awful. And by the time I got there, Mr. Bacula and all the others had gone.
0: No. <laughs> you made a promise and you welched on it. Why'd you do it, Doctor Crane? <laughs> it's not really such a big deal, is it, no? It's a huge deal. Who knows when I'll get to see Scott Bakula again? I'll be the laughing stock of my clan. No, I'll try to remember. <laughs> clan? <laughs> no, never mind.
1: Never mind.
0: <laughs>
1: no. Surely you realize that Star Trek is just a TV show. So as Bright's Head Revisited. <laughs> You're angry. So I'm going to ignore
0: that. So, Mark, do you know what Brideshead Revisited is? Like, do you know, like, what it means? I've, I've heard
1: that so many mm-hmm. times I can't remember. Yeah,
0: so I didn't I didn't really understand it either. But so, you know, Frasier in that clip says, you know, he's making fun of Noel that Star Trek is just a TV show. And then Frasier takes offense when Noel says, so was Bride, Brideshead Revisited, like it was just a TV show um come to research that quote like a little bit more and Brideshead Revisited isn't just a TV show it's also an like it was first a book by a man named Evelyn Waugh when i first picked it up i was like oh evelyn it's going to be by a woman and i actually started reading the book thinking like yeah this book is by a woman and then it's not <laughs> it's by a guy named Arthur Evelyn Waugh uh he's an english novelist um but the reason why uh, Noel in that episode of Frasier said Head Revisited is just a TV show is because in 1981, it was adapted into 11-part TV series with Jeremy Irons. You know Jeremy Irons? Yep. And uh, he plays the part of Charles Ryder, who is uh, – in a lot of ways, Brideshead Revisited is like the super classic ex- – it was published in 1945 – and it's the super classic example of like the English novel that's like back in the days, you know, rose-colored glasses of like someone looking back and being like, in our Oxford days, we were so young and free mm-hmm. and amazing. You know, like those <laughs> Can, type of like.
1: Yeah, yeah. Can you, you explain like, the name? The name gives me a lot of issues. Like what, what is it? Is Brideshead a place?
0: Yes, okay. So okay. Brideshead Re- Brideshead Revisited is a place and the theme the like the reason why it's called that. It's actually a little bit confusing in the book too because Brideshead is also the name of one of the characters in like an aristocratic family. Um, but Brideshead is in the same in the same way that you know in the show Downton Abbey the 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 Abbey has a name, Downton. Mm-hmm. So There are these places throughout England that are called country homes, but are basically like massive palatial mansions that people like aristocrats used to live in. And in a lot of ways, Brideshead revisited what is the original Downton Abbey. Like the thing with Jeremy Irons is like an 11 part miniseries that people when it came out in the 80s, people were like glued to their televisions and like talking about it at water coolers. And I think that that's the reference that lived on in Frasier where it's like, if any, uh, if any, what, if there ever was like a TV show that stuffy people like Fraser and Niles would worship, it would be *Brideshead Revisited*. Even though I am going to go into the fact that the uh, the TV show is available on Amazon Prime and it's fucking horrible. Like I watched, <laughs> I watched 35 minutes of it, and I was just like. This is horrible. Like it's ripe for a new adaptation in 2018. I think they made a movie in 2008, but it's really bad. But I'll go into that later. Um, but to, to go more about the title is, is, is a good segue into kind of summarizing the book. So the book starts, I almost stopped right when it started because it was like yet another World War II story where it starts out with this guy, Charles Ryder, who's in like an English encampment in the UK. Like he's, he's like a UK soldier who's basically like in the reserves of world war two. Like the war is starting to bubble up, but they haven't really departed for any foreign land yet. And what happens is his, he's like the Sergeant or like the commander of a regiment who is going to move like across the country. They're taking a train to get into like a new position within the United Kingdom. And the reason why it's called Brideshead Revisited is because they set up outside of, like, one of the, like, basically during the World Wars, like World War One and World War II, those country homes were so extravagant that the government started, like, using, they would, like, contact the aristocrat and be like, we just have to use your massive mansion for, like, soldiers and, like, for, you know, like, in Downton Abbey, there's, like, an, like, a, Plot line where they use it as a hospital during World War One and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So basically, they were so massive that they
1: were like, we have to use your house for... Yeah, it's a military base.
0: Yeah, practical reasons <laughs> and stuff. And that's what happens in Brideshead Revisited, that basically all these soldiers are like, hey, we're going to be moving into this like mansion. Isn't it funny? Like, this big country home. Like, here we are. And the guy, Charles, who's like at the top of the regiment, is like, yeah, I've been here before because um, it was one of his dear close friends in in his oxford days lived here and the guy and then he like goes into like a flashback of like yeah i have been here before and it's like really emotional for him um and basically from then into the flashback is when it becomes like a massive page turner and it's the classic story like there's this guy named sebastian who comes to oxford and he kind of expands um Charles's view of like what life can be like. First of all, everyone in this book is posh and annoying and rich. So <laughs> that's like to start off there is sort of like there's nothing in this book that's like sort of real. It's like basically like oh yes, I went to Oxford and daddy gave me a like a stipend and like blah 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 and I just had an allowance from my rich father who lives in London, but The guy that he becomes obsessed with, Sebastian, is even richer than he is. Like he's the one who lives at Brideshead and his mother is like a marchess and his father is like an English lord and stuff like that. So they're even richer than the rich people who went to Oxford. So, you know, there's no kind of like realistic, you know, yearning for anything in these books. But what's interesting is that, you know, obviously this book has like undertones of having, you know, like an LGBT sort of like story where it's like, I was in love with Sebastian and you kind of don't know if that love is platonic or erotic. Um, and there are a few sentences within the novel that people really pick apart of like, yes, he it was homosexual. No, it wasn't homosexual. Like all these other things. I mean, I tend to come down on the side of like, it was like a homosexual relationship between Charles and Sebastian because of the research that I did into Arthur Evelyn Waugh's actual biography. Like, this book is basically one for one, his autobiography, but in novel form, where like he was, he went to Oxford, he was like an English schoolboy from like a rich father, and then he, uh, his brother before him, had actually gotten kicked out of a school for a homosexual relationship that he then published a book about. And then he goes to the same school and um, then on to Oxford, where he basically becomes like a semi alcoholic, which everyone in this book kind of is like a semi alcoholic. And it's actually a really interesting, as the story develops, it's a really interesting view into how alcohol kind of like ravished the lives of a lot of <laughs> upper, you know, class people in England. Um, mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I mean, it goes forward with like this relationship with Sebastian and they go to the house a few times, Bride's Head. And it becomes like like when I said it's a page turner, it becomes that addicting sort of like Downton Abbey style thing where it's like, oh, the lords and ladies and this means this and that means that and all of it is very well written in in a sense that like. He makes you chuckle a few times, and a lot of the eccentric rich characters are appropriately eccentric, and it's just kind of fun. It's like a relaxing read of like, it's happening in the countryside, and you know, blah blah blah, all these things. But so you're not I really will...
1: confronted with the war that much.
0: No, 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 no. it has the nothing war to is do not with the... it. Big... It has it's... no. Okay. The... Once the flashback happens, the war is what's like kind of coming in the distance, but the rich people like don't care about it yet. You know, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, gotcha.
0: And the flashback actually goes all the way back to, you know, like 20 years ago when it was like the 1920s and 30s. So that's when they're studying. The thing that I like loved about this book actually sort of deteriorated towards the end because I love the relationship between Charles and Sebastian and sort of Sebastian was like this eccentric character who takes for granted that he's from this rich family but also like he likes to sort of avoid it's like the classic scenario of like oh don't i don't want you to meet my family because they like corrupt everyone with their richness and stuff like that and um as the novel goes forward i found sebastian to be the most fascinating character because he he goes through a lot of stuff where he's basically in denial of his own privilege and then becomes like an actual like alcoholic and it's like really bad like his family like doesn't know how to control him and he like convinces the servants to like bring him alcohol even though when they're not supposed to and stuff like that and it becomes this really cool narrative about Sebastian and all of his problems um but then the novel at the end sort of drifts away from that and becomes more about like you're sort of um abruptly reminded that Charles is the narrator not um not not sebastian Sebastian. and that was like sort of a hard realization where i'm like oh like this is going to start to become about charles and not about sebastian but there was really awesome there was one awesome like really emotional speech by sebastian's younger sister when he, where she describes basically like like they're kind of pondering like what's really going to happen to sebastian and she Ends up describing someone that you probably feel like you've known in the past where basically she's like saying he ends up being like sort of a, you know, like a drunk who's like trying to get a foothold at like a monastery somewhere in Tunisia or something like that. He's so privileged that he still like gets the money from his family and stuff like that. So it's like he has a weekly allowance that he can spend on booze and stuff like that. But he's trying to find himself in all these international locations like Morocco and stuff like that. And there's this really great emotional speech that she gives about how he's basically just going to become like the janitor who has drinking problems. But everyone like doesn't really know his full story. You know, like one of those like things and the way that she describes it, it's like you feel like you know that person, you know, like someone who has worked somewhere that you don't really know the full story of who they are, but it's actually just like really sad. And um, that was really good. But and then like I basically would say like Evelyn was just very good at writing in the sense that he brings everything together with eccentric characters that you like but at the same time, he. This novel is about the loss of innocence, but also about the reverie of of innocence and stuff like that. And I want to read like a short paragraph that. This is a really short paragraph that's like an example of how good his writing can be, like metaphorically stuff like that. Um, this is from page two hundred one, and he's just drinking some. Alcohol and Burgundy with this guy who is sort of tangential to the whole like Brideshead Mansion thing, uh, but he's he's drinking with another character and this is what he has to say just about a glass of alcohol. So he says, okay. "I rejoiced in the Burgundy. It seemed a reminder that the world was an older and better place than Rex knew. The that mankind in its long passion had learned another wisdom than his. By chance, I met this same wine again, lunching with my." wine merchant in St. James's Street in the first autumn of the war. It had softened and faded in the intervening years, but it still spoke in the pure, authentic accent of its prime, the same words of hope. Um, So just like a glass of wine, like coming out of nowhere in the middle of a scene, he'll be like, this guy Rex, who's like this, he marries one of the, you know, the lord's daughters or whatever he's basically you know just enjoying a glass of wine he can find the fact that there's like the hope of youth in the old world and stuff like that and you know they're being (laughs) thrust into a new world and i really didn't really i didn't really make that many notes of how how good his writing is because i was just like this is like a good page turner and it's kind of one of those things like i said with hunger last week it's like i was reading brides had revisited like instead of watching tv which i think is like that's good enough right there you nice. know?
1: yeah like what do you think like what do you think made it that much of a page turner because it it feels like the scope isn't too big here so it's more like the relationships
0: the i think it's the relationships that sort of I that made it that yeah that. i think it's also it's like a pretty mature novel about like you're gonna be reading it and reflecting about how like oh yeah like When you it's very much like a, a like, you know, like I said, he's thrust into the war and it's like his reflections on like this really lavish past that he had. So I would say that you want to at least like have a past when you're reading this book of basically like, oh, yeah, like like he falls in love like twice and like what does that mean and <laughs> oh like like your friend who you knew so well that he starts to cling basically like sebastian wastes away into like an alcohol so he it's an alcoholic so he starts to like cling on to his family and like what does it mean like just to have like these impressions of people from long ago and like you know everything you know comes back full circle so it's just like a really nice book like that where if you have some sort of Past, or if you ever felt like the past was like recurring to you? Then it's all like there's a lot of really interesting kind of mature wanderings about what youth means.
1: So that it was that a page turn, yeah, it was page yeah, turn in right that way. You think a lot of people can relate to it, or is it?
0: I think yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to it as long as you can get over the idea that like. If you're coming at this book with, like, a 2019 semi-political or 2020 semi-political sensibility of, like, do rich people matter, then you might be, like, a little bit offended by the idea. Like, nothing nothing is, like, threatening to them, you know? Like, yeah, life yeah. is just like, oh, then this happened and, like, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, well, there. it's, like, low stakes, but at the same time, it's just about, like, you know. And it's also really interesting. I guess I would say, you know... It was weird how it made the turn about how it wasn't about their relationship anymore. But it is interesting in the in, towards the end of the book, like Charles has a family that has nothing to do with that old past that, you know, and it's interesting because he seems very like nonchalant, like, oh, yeah, I got married. I had two kids. But let's talk more about Brideshead. And it's like, oh, you're like stuck in the past, like you're sort of an <laughs> asshole. And uh, and it's just like kind of interesting in that way. But I'll move on to my one star review um, again. Frasier delivered to me a nice novel and something that culturally I think is interesting because we've you know you've heard me talk about Downton Abbey before and it's like history repeats itself like this is the original Downton and I'm sure maybe there was one before that and maybe there'll be one after this so my one-star review is from Joe on Goods he says this was as awful a book as I've ever read the first half was about a guy's friend dealing with severe alcoholism the second half was was uh fucking that guy's sister plus some catholicism I guess. <laughs> so, pretty good, maybe a little bit of spoilers there,
1: but um some pretty good some pretty good stuff and uh, I think I think hatred definitely is a path to being succinct. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, definitely. He's like I could ra- I could wrap it up in in two sentences. Yeah, exactly. Um so.
0: 400 page book, two sentences, but yeah, it's I think I thought it was great. And um, it was just so easy to to complete for the podcast, so that was good too.
1: Nice. Yeah, sounds good. Another another classic or semi classic conquered. Yeah, it's like lot, that thing. You know, you
0: know, now now when I hear *Brideshead Revisited*, whether it's in Fraser or anywhere else, I know exactly what what they're talking about.
1: Cool. <clears throat> All right, my turn. So. Your turn. For the past couple of weeks, I've been reading this book. Um, it's a pretty big one—five hundred something pages. But it's maybe not honest in its page count, and I'll get mm. to that later. Um, so let me first ask: I, I well, I know I know that you're a big Akira Kurosawa fan. The director you covered yes. his covered his uh, what was it? His biography?
0: Yeah, his, his, his something like an
1: autobiography is what it's called. Okay, cool. Um, So I guess I got to ask, what are your thoughts on the film, the 1954 film Seven Samurai? Seven Samurai is,
0: yeah, it's a masterpiece. It's definitely a masterpiece. It's, I find Seven Samurai interesting because I think a lot of people are introduced to Kurosawa by the fame of Seven Samurai. And it's famously a very long movie. I think it's like three and a half hours, maybe four or something like that. I was introduced to him more for his like shorter Like the films, all of his films inspired Western adaptations. Like the film Yojimbo is then like remade with Clint Eastwood called like A Fistful of Dollars or something like that. Yeah. And Seven Seven Samurai was remade into a Western film as well. Yep. Um, I'll get to that later. But yeah, Seven Samurai is is a masterpiece. I mean, basically I I had watched his shorter movies before I delved into Seven Samurai. But then when I started Seven Samurai, I was like, holy shit, this movie is like so good. Is it, Kurosawa is a bit of a mystery because his movies are f- from what you feel like is a long time ago. But then when you start watching it, you're like, oh, it's like
1: so easy to watch as a modern viewer, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, well, isn't it just the absence of, you know, it's black and white film, right?
0: Yeah, it, he, he, he shot a few yeah.
1: movies in color. But yeah, black yeah. And white. I think that's that's the transition point that people... Kind of cling to, I guess. Black and white and like titles. super old. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book I read this week is both sort of a parallel and sort of a critique of Seven Samurai. Hmm, okay. And it's also it's one of the strangest sort of books I've I've read lately in so much as the language and the structure and I guess I would say the style of printing. Like I'm like I said, the uh, page count's not too honest, I guess. Mm-hmm in a in the sort of way of like a House of Leaves. Right. Yeah. Or uh yeah. example you might not be familiar with Lost in the Funhouse that sort of way it's like experimental printing mm-hmm. and sort of Right. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, like House of yeah. Leaves has pages where it's like a like the Upside text wraps around the border <laughs> yeah. and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyways, it's it's a novel that really focuses heavily on I guess the Topics of intelligence, language, and identity. And now that I've done my little spiel, I can reveal the title, which is The Last Samurai by Helen DeWitt. Hmm. This is from the year 2000. It's a debut well, novel. I know you're interested well, in those. Mm-hmm. American author. Um, it's one of those debuts that comes out of nowhere. And I feel like DeWitt absolutely dropped a bomb like on the literary world with this one. Like As a debut, it's very bold, you know, it's super dense. Mm-hmm. It has a, a very unique style. And for that to be your introduction, that's yeah. Impressive. And interesting. is this,
0: is this the film that was, it was ad- adapted into with Tom Cruise? No,
1: <laughs> not okay. at all. And <laughs> okay. that's why it's kind of funny how it was either, you know, overshadowed or somehow connected to this film that has nothing to do with it because it's, um it's extremely different. <laughs> yeah. And I think like the book would be a uh, cr- a critique of that film, I guess, because it, of how much reverence it has for Seven Samurai.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. uh, I don't I don't know if that Tom Cruise movie was good. I think it's kind of more of a punchline because it's like this white guy is the last samurai or whatever. <laughs> right. I, I, I never saw it. I don't know it, anything about it yet. Yeah, <laughs> I think it just kind of faded into obscurity. But so this book is somehow it's a it's dense, but it's also fast, and mm-hmm. you know there's pages filled to the brim with numbers and math calculations or you know Greek or Japanese or even Icelandic like letters and writing and there's sometimes there's pages of mostly blank space and spare dialogue and that sort of thing. but let me explain why it may sound so chaotic. I'll just go over the basic plot, so this woman. Sibylla uh she's a single mother she has a child that she's named Ludo that's kind of like a nickname but and you know she's raising him in such a way he's he's like a toddler at the beginning of the book she's raising him in such a way that she's got him reading like the odyssey in 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 the original greek at three years old and she's teaching him japanese and uh Laplace transforms and advance all these advanced things before he's even six like she's kind of raising him in that sort of way where it's mm-hmm. like regimented towards learning all these uh, really various sort of things so they live in London and um, they sort of do yo-yoing like you know the, that reference mm-hmm. for the, the Pynchon novel V where that's right. where you'll kind of ride the, uh, the subway Mm-hmm. back and forth just to have something to do so they'll they'll sort of ride the tube in london or what's the the underground circle line the tube yeah, all yeah. day that's a that's a horrible decision The the tube is <laughs> horrible but okay <laughs> so they ride that you know one to just stay warm because they're broke and they're having trouble you know heating the their house and everything and two mm-hmm. just they bring all these books with them and they you know just keep learning the kids just absorbing everything but the whole time whenever he's not reading or studying or being inquisitive he's he's really he's wondering who his father is because his mother won't really disclose that to him and essentially the only father figures he has in his life are the characters from seven samurai hmm sibyla okay. i'll just call her sib she's obsessed with the movie and you know they watch it weekly or sometimes more often it's it's presented as like an escapism sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know. She has just like unending praise for this movie, and they dive really deep into what each character sort of means to the film or how they how they are as like a, a man, hmm. that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's interesting in that in that respect, but you know, so that's part of it. Like the book talks about seven samurai a lot. And that's like what I said. Um, It talks from it, but then it also parallels it because Ludo eventually grows up, you know, a little more and through his sort of will and resourcefulness and things that I guess he learns from the movie and learns from all the learning he does, uh, goes out and, you know, searches for his potential father. Mm -hmm. So doesn't this kind of sound like the framework for what we've come to you know, no as the prototypical like postmodern novel. Like what's that term that was applied to Zadie Smith's white teeth?
0: Um, we bring it up hysterical a lot. hysterical
1: but... realism. Yeah, hysterical realism where everything is elevated past reality. Right. Like in some way. Mm-hmm. So this novel is set up like that. Yeah, but, but I, I just say... it's
0: basically like throwing a lot of elements onto a dartboard and saying, How am I gonna resolve this?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'd say it's set up in that same sort of way, but it approaches it, and the execution is completely different. So, so Helen DeWitt, she's, uh, you know, she's a PhD. She studied the classics, uh, a lot of educational background. She's she's only published two novels: this one from t- 2000 and uh, 2012's Lightning Rod. Uh, but yeah, obviously she's very super educated. Anyway, she kind of approaches this book in a way where she's not just presenting the genius of the child ludo she's kind of showing you how he got to that point like Mm -hmm. she's presenting the greek alphabet and the japanese characters and their translations and showing you sort of how Sibylla like taught it to ludo like it kind of progresses that way from the very beginning to like advanced kind of stuff and you know the first half of the book is really presented as like a diary of their daily progress and the whole time you know Flashbacks to like the con- conception of the child, and um, hmm. the, the kid's kind of inquisitiveness of uh, you know, who his father is, and that's kind of what makes it so dense. But that's one thing I would say is like a good critique of that hysterical realism is it's never like explained, it's just thrown at you, like, hey, this guy's a genius, you know, he's uh, whatever, he can levitate <laughs> because he knows. Math so well or something, you know, shit like that or Mm -hmm. what's the what's that example that he used? The guy who critiqued it. Um I don't know. I'll have to go back and take a look at that. But I I feel like sometimes in that postmodern world, stuff like that is presented and just, you know, you have to accept it like, oh, well this is this is how it is, this person is this unique and and Mm -hmm. I can't I'm not gonna tell you why. It just that's you know deal with it but this book sort of dives into okay how did this happen it sort of trying to explain it some more Mm -hmm. and i thought that was pretty interesting and so like i said before this book doesn't just use seven samurai as a a reference like there's obviously a lot of reverence in it and they dive into certain scenes and um would you say that different meanings of the book
0: I think I know the answer already. I mean, but like, it's not required that you've seen
1: Seven Samurai, but it more like inspires you to watch it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I would say that you feel like you've seen the movie after you've mm-hmm. read this book. Um, but yeah, it makes me want to watch it again, for sure. Just ran out of time. <laughs> I would have done it before the episode. But, um, so, like I said, it, it uses it as a reference, but it also borrows the structure of it from this for the second half of this book. Mm-hmm. So when when Ludo approaches his teenage years, he kind of uses the sort of clues and things he's gathered from his mother and I guess inspiration from the film sort of to identify his potential father. So he kind mm-hmm. of like 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 in the movie how they're recruiting the the samurai, he's kind of looking for his real father to be the one who can parry the blow just like a real samurai could do. Right. You know, it's that's that that's the test parrying the blow. And in that sense, it's him approaching them and, you know, testing their intelligence and their metal and their, you know, whatever that is about them, like all these. So he, basically there's like six potential people and some of them like don't really make sense for the timeline or whatever. But it's just, you know, because he's he's still a kid. He's kind of naive and uh, along with being super brilliant. But it's a pretty interesting setup, right? Doesn't that sound kind of cool? Like, yeah, he's kind of going out into the world on his own. Um, I feel like it's rare that a structure is borrowed across a medium like this. Mm-hmm. Especially a, a movie yeah. framework um, translated yeah. into a book after the facts. It also
0: sa- it cool. has, like, brief kind of... The way that you said it's, like, described as, like, he's striking out into the world with a certain, like like a list in mind it kind of sounds like um the structure of uh count of monte cristo you know it's yeah. like you you know that there's like a list basically
1: <laughs> it's like kill bill too right? Right. Like that sort Yeah, of Kill Bill. Yep. <laughs> so i want to read a quick section where ludo has you talked about this before but where ludo has borrowed the magnificent seven from the library like the movie mm-hmm. which is of course the 1960 american adaptation of seven samurai that turned it into a western you know with mm-hmm. cowboys instead of samurai warriors so keep in mind that Siby- Sibylla is obsessed with the film and accepts no you know criticism of it so you got to wonder what she thinks about this movie <laughs> i went back to the house sybilla was still sitting in the chair i said I got you a video, and I put the cassette in the TV and turned it on. A copyright warning came and went. Sib sat up. Oh, said Sib, tall men in tight jeans. What, I said. I haven't seen this in years, said Sib. It says on the cover that it's a Western based on the story of Seven Samurai, so I thought you'd like it. Like it, said Sib. I adore it. You know how much I like the Tyrone Power school of acting. Do you want me to take it back, I said. But it was too late. Sib was sitting alertly on the arm of a chair like a terrier with its eyes on the ball. Ball flies through the air. Terrier flies over ground. Terrier gets ball. Terrier barks insanely. Terrier spends hour growling if anyone tries to get ball and whining if no one shows interest. No sooner had the film begun than gleeful Sib pounced on some point in which it was inferior to Seven Samurai. And for the (laughs) next hour, there was an almost constant stream of comment interrupted only by howls of laughter at each appearance of the recruit from the Tyrone Power School of Acting, and by occasional silences in which I was meant to disagree so she could argue some more. There may have been some dialogue. If there was, I couldn't hear it. Brenner began to recruit men for the job. It's a difficult assignment, said Sibylla. It'll be hard to find so many tall men in tight jeans. Will you shut up, I said. I'm sorry, said Sib, shutting up. Isn't there anything you like about it, I said. How can you ask, said Sib. Not one, but seven tall men in tight jeans. It's simply magnificent. Never mind, I said. And it's so easy to follow, you can tell which one is the mercenary because he has a stomach. Never mind, I said. The villain is the short one, said Sib. The starving peasants are fat. If they were tall and lean, it would be too confusing. I looked at the screen without saying anything. I think the one thing I would say about this book well, first of all, uh what do you think about the uh, that movie? W- comparing the two movies,
0: uh, I mean, I like. You know, I, I would be on the si- on Sib side of being like, "Why would you try to equal Seven Samurai?" But it's also just like it's still good. I mean, I love seeing just the way movies that large were crafted back then, which is it, with like a lot of love and care.
1: So I'm still. I still enjoy both. Okay, yeah, I don't, I, it's not a half-assed adaptation. I feel like, like. but um, yeah, I could see. <laughs> it, it is kind of funny, I guess, how she's saying that there's no kind of nuance in it as far as stuff like that, like um, even just the look of, of the people they cast, and like, that's just something about Hollywood, I guess. But, um, so I, I'd say, just reading that section, like it kind of reminded me that the style of this one moves around so much where it's a, it's, I I would say if I had some criticism, I'd say it's a little clunky in the way that it's dialogue is handled. Like I said, she said, he said, like it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot of it is like that. Um But that's only, there's not too many characters, so it's not hard to follow. But in the beginning of the book, like the I'd say the first quarter, I was super thrown off by the style because it, it was it was almost reading like two storylines. Um where it would go from one paragraph to the next, like A B, A, B, A, B, like the two storylines. Hmm. Like it was a little bit hard to follow at that point, but once I kind of understood which what I was supposed to be paying attention to, it wasn't a problem. It was just kind of a interesting Decision stylistically but um i'd say overall i I did enjoy it though and maybe the parts that covered different languages would be different if i was earnestly trying to learn them along with ludo but i was kind of just along for the ride so i wasn't like affected by that i wasn't like studying it or Mm -hmm. paying too much attention to it i was like oh that's interesting i guess you know it's as cool as a reference i guess So uh, I got a one-star review here, Mm -hmm. and this is from user Oleg. And he says, wanted to give two stars just for pity. I mean, (laughs) really, what is it all about to write the book as if it is a puzzle? Come on, I want to read. When I want to play with puzzle, I will buy a puzzle. (laughs) The storyline is also a problem. Really, this book is like, arg, it could be good, at least good, but even didn't made it. To have two stars because of being too clumsy, too wannabe, too intellectual, too everything and noting and nothing in the same time. Hmm. I think that's um, one of the common complaints I saw is that this is sort of a pretentious book in the way that this child is a genius, I guess. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, it's easy to learn, whatever. Right. But, you know, they're showing you the pro the the progress of it over the course of like 4 years so it's not i don't know i i wasn't i wasn't put off by like the displays of well look how impressive this is i mean it, it's i don't know it didn't take anything away from it for me i don't care i'm not jealous <laughs> of the of the kid or whatever <laughs> it's a it's a story but um I don't know. I do recommend this one. I thought it was re- pretty cool. And I've seen certain places where this book is highly, highly regarded. I think someone, there's something, maybe the Guardian or maybe something that called it like the book of the millennium or something. They said nice. it was like the best thing ever. So
0: I had <laughs> to see what ever. it was all
1: about. Awesome.
0: Is that how you found <laughs> it?
1: Like you just saw something that was like best book ever? I think so. Yeah, I think I saw someone giving it just the highest praise. I can't remember the source, but nice a while ago. Glad I read it, though. It's good. Sweet. All right. Awesome. <laughs> thanks for, Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. It's been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter, at SBR the Podcast. And you can also email us, Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, send us your comments, suggestions, and corrections, whatever you're feeling. You know, send us your short stories and long stories um yeah see you next time
0: see you next time